0: Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be here and visit again. My name's Tim Wilson, and I was here earlier in January, and so I see many familiar faces, and it's good to see you again. Uh, I'm not Pastor Mike, obviously, and so if this is your first time, then I'd welcome you and ask you to come back next week, because then you'll get to meet and hear Pastor Mike preach. But uh, it's certainly a privilege to be here this morning and, and preach knowing the church, and Pastor Mike has such a high view of Scripture and of preaching. It's certainly a humbling privilege to come and be able to open God's Word and, and share with you this morning. And so if you will take your, your Bible, we're going to open to John 3, 16, and we're going to go through the verses 16, 17, and 18 together this morning. John 3, 16 to 18. As you turn there as well, I just want to make mention of the outline and application sheets that you should have. You can use that sheet to follow along with the main points of the sermon, take notes if you like. And then I'd encourage you on the back of that is some application questions that you can think through for the rest of the week, talk to others even maybe about so that you're more specifically able to apply this text in your life as we walk out of here later today. And so, I just encourage you to do that, as as we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so, uh, use that as a resource, and certainly allow the Holy Spirit to to speak to you through His Word this morning. But we're going to read John three sixteen to eighteen, and so God's Word reads: For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray before we begin this morning. Well, Father, we have read Your Word and I pray that you would open our hearts to be receptive of your word. It is your word that is truth. It is your word that sanctifies us. It's your word that convicts us. It's your word that enlightens us to the truth of who you are and who we are. And so, Lord, we would just submit ourselves to your word, the authority of your word, trusting that it is your word and your word alone that is sufficient for our lives on a day-to-day basis. Father, we acknowledge You as being Supreme, Almighty God, and I pray that this morning as we talk through the Gospel of salvation, that You would be exalted, that Your Son would be exalted as we examine what You have done, what He has done, in order to bring us into reconciliation with Yourself. And so it may be that Lord, my words would be faithful to your text and that together we would have a greater understanding, a a deeper understanding of the theology of salvation. Lord, that it would impact our lives, not just today as we hear it, but the rest of our lives. It would be a message that would go forth across the world. A message that is the only hope, the only way. And so I trust, Lord, that you would be honored this morning, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this is a very familiar verse, obviously, to many of you. John 3.16 may be one of the, the first verses that you would memorize. But we're going to go into it more depth this morning, and and I want us to really glean the truth that God has for us as we go through these verses. If we look back into the context of of John chapter 3, we see a discussion that's happening between Jesus and Nicodemus. And if we look at verse 1, it tells us who this man Nicodemus was. He was representative of the Jewish belief because he's identified as both a Pharisee and as a ruler of the Jews in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then in verse 10 we see that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus because he didn't understand spiritual truth. And we see here though in verse 10 that Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. Meaning Nicodemus wasn't just a teacher of many, but he was the teacher of Israel. And by this it suggests that Nicodemus was the man who was responsible to teach the Jewish people spiritual truth. Truth that can be gleaned from the Old Testament as they had in that time. Nicodemus was representative of what the Jews believed of salvation. And yet we see in verses 4 and 9, through Nicodemus' questions, he didn't understand God's plan for salvation. He couldn't comprehend it. So he, he assumed that he knew God and that he knew God's plan for salvation. And yet we see through this passage here, the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus, that he misunderstood this essential truth. And therefore, because of that, we know he would have misled others in this same false teaching that he was was teaching. And I would say there's no greater error. If you have everything right of your theology, but you don't understand the truth of salvation, it doesn't matter what else you know is right. We must understand God's plan for salvation. And yet, unfortunately, it wasn't just Nicodemus and the Jews of Jesus' day who misunderstood God's true plan for salvation. The church has always been threatened by a misunderstanding of of salvation. In Acts chapter 15, we see the, the... church leaders came together in the early church and, and they were confronted with false teaching of salvation. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we see that the, the elders came together and it says the false teaching was unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so the elders had to go through what is known as the Jerusalem Council to stand upon God's Word and His plan for salvation, that salvation is apart from works. The salvation is by grace alone. And that's what they stood for in the early church. We see the same in Paul's letter to the Galatians. He was rebuking and challenging and confronting them because they were turning to a different gospel. And as we read through the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15 and and Paul standing against the false gospel, and as that they were teaching the true biblical definition of the gospel, we see the battle has even continued throughout all of church history. So, today, on October 31st, maybe some of you know why that's a special day, but we look back 504 years ago when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the church door in Germany. And that act is, is his stance for biblical truth and for a biblical doctrine of salvation. So his, his thesis, which he nailed on the door on this day in 1517, upheld what the Bible teaches and, and many have credited it to be the launching part of the Reformation. And a big part of the Reformation was rejecting the gospel of good works and upholding that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet even as we consider Martin Luther and the other reformers and their stand against the false gospel, the battle continues today. If we move forward another 500 years from the Reformation, we would be in in our present day here sitting here today. And the battle continues, not just in the world, but in the church. The the church doesn't even understand the gospel. If we can't understand the gospel, how are we going to tell the world the gospel? So in 2020, there was a survey conducted of professing evangelical Christians. Evangelical would be those that we would associate with, those who would profess that the Bible is God's Word. And yet almost 50% of those evangelicals who were surveyed believe that people are by nature good. Okay, And more than 40%, so more than 4 out of 10, thought that God accepts worship from all religions. But then I would say... Maybe even even more shocking than that. And, and seeing history repeating itself both from the events of Nicodemus and the discussion he had with Jesus as, as well as the challenges in the false gospel that Martin Luther and the Reformers had to face. In 2018, there's a, a story. You can YouTube it and you can find this on the Internet to confirm my story. But there was in some sense, a a similar discussion of salvation as to that which uh, Jesus and Nicodemus had. There was a man who was probably in the world's eyes presented as the one who is the, the representative of the Christian faith. And so this man, as I said, in the world's eyes, and it shouldn't be in the church eyes, but in the world's eyes, they would see this man as representative of what Christians believe in general. And he was having a a very open public uh, discussion time, question and answer time. And it's all being broadcasted. And so millions of people may have watched this video. But a boy came up and wanted to ask a question. The boy was about 10 years old. He came forward. He was very fearful. There was thousands of people who were watching Uh, in person, plus maybe others online. And this boy came forward with a question, too scared to ask the question before the whole audience. And so this man representing, uh, let's say, Christian thought, urged the, the boy to come forward and whisper the question in his ear. And so the boy slowly moved forward and he whispered the question into this man's ear. And it turns out that the question was then repeated for the audience. And and the question was, from this 10-year-old boy, is my dad in heaven? Okay, but this, this boy's dad had just recently died, I believe. He was an atheist. And so the question is a question of salvation. Will an atheist go to heaven? And this man responded by asking a series of questions, coaxing the audience to come to a conclusion that basically said this man was a good man and he would go to heaven. This man is the Pope, representing in some sense the the Christian church, and yet misunderstanding and therefore misleading completely millions of people as to the understanding of salvation. An atheist will not go to heaven. That's the the state of understanding of the gospel in our world and in churches. And so the deception that the Jews believed 2,000 years ago is the same lie that a majority of people still believe today. That God loves them and they will be saved because of who they are. But believing this lie, believing the deception from the Pope, is only going to provide a false sense of security, a vain hope, and, and short term confidence. Because unless we know the, the true saving gospel, we can't be saved. And unless we know the true saving gospel, we can't share it with others so that they can be saved. And on top of this, it's when we know and receive and live the true saving gospel that we're transformed daily to become more like Christ. Jerry Bridges said this, quote, The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. End quote. Then he continues later on, quote, Christians are not instructed in the gospel. And because they do not fully understand the riches and glory of the gospel, they cannot preach it to themselves nor live it in their daily lives. End quote. I know this is a gospel-believing, gospel-proclaiming church. But I would just urge us today that we would consider more deeply the true gospel, that we would understand it more fully so that we can live it out more fully. Because it's every day when we sin that we're not living out the true gospel. And so we're going to consider today five salvation truths in God's true plan for salvation. In our passage in John three, sixteen to 18. It doesn't matter whether you are saved, whether you think you're saved and you're not, or that you're here today and you know that you're not saved. These truths are facts that are necessary for our everyday existence. For everyday life. Okay, and for anyone who isn't saved, I would pray that this may be the day of your salvation. And maybe you're thinking I don't need to hear a sermon on John three sixteen because I memorized it when I was three or four years old. Maybe you just think it's too simple a message and you want deeper theology. But I would urge us, and I say us because it includes me, that that we would allow the Holy Spirit to give us a deeper understanding of this truth, of this foundational doctrine. That we'd be captured by the joy of our salvation. That we'd be convicted of the importance of sharing this gospel, the good news with others. And that we would allow the gospel to impact our life every day. As we live in obedience to Christ, who we have professed to be both our Lord and our Savior. And so I pray that's what you would desire for this morning. And so this morning we're going to consider these five truths. It's in your outline there as well God's passion, God's present, God's promise, God's purpose, and God's prosecution. In the beginning of verse 16, we see God's passion. That's the first salvation truth in God's true plan for salvation. And and this point really flows on from verses 14 and 15, which point to Christ's death and, and the importance to believe in Him and His death on the cross in order to receive eternal life. So therefore, we see that word for at the beginning of verse 16, which is then introducing the explanation of the prophetic events that were just described in verses 14 and 15. And the first part of the explanation is God's passion. It says, as we read it, God so loved the world. And so God's passion is his love. And it was this love that then motivated him to action. But we understand here where it says God so loved the world that God's love then isn't just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well. And for Nicodemus and the Jews, they would have been completely shocked and stunned that this would be true. It was completely opposite of their belief. They had the Old Testament, and yet again they had missed... The understanding that salvation wasn't just for the Jews because God had said in the Abrahamic covenant that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And yet still, that idea would have been shocking. The idea that God loved the Jews was well accepted. Even at a point of boasting. But to think that God could love Gentiles was unthinkable. The the Gentiles were considered scum in the eyes of the Jews. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter went to Cornelius' house, he told them in person that it was unlawful to associate with and visit the Gentiles. And, And there's a point elsewhere in the Gospels where I think it's James and John asked Jesus whether the Samaritans should be struck down because of the way they rejected Jesus. So this would be way worse than the Edmonton mayor saying, I love the Calgary flames. And yet in reality, for both the Jews and the Gentiles, God's love is undeserved. Because rather than being good people, as the majority of, of people think, the Bible teaches we are children of wrath in Ephesians two three. That we're enemies of God in Romans five ten, that we're deserving of death in Romans six twenty three. Apart from salvation, none of us will seek God, none of us are righteous, Romans three ten eleven. Apart from salvation, none of us are even able to please God. Romans eight eight. And so God's love isn't dependent on who we are, on our love, or how good we are. In fact, it's because of how bad we are that we see a greater demonstration of God's love. We see a greater demonstration of God's love. So 1 John 4, 9-10 reads this, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I think of the the story of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, we have the story of the, the selfish son who really wanted his dad to be dead so he could gain his his inheritance. And then when he actually was given the inheritance before his dad died, we know that from the story he took off and he wasted that money. He, he lived a rebellious and, and pointless lifestyle until he had no money left. Okay. Finally, in desperation, he decided to, to go back to his dad and at least be a slave knowing he would be provided for. And yet we see that as soon as the father saw his son coming, which suggests that the father was continually on the lookout for for this son, maybe even over periods of months or years, that the father was continually looking for him. We see that from a a long distance he ran as fast as he could to his son. He hugged him, he, he kissed him and welcomed him as a son. Before the the son could even get out the words of repentance and and ask to just come back as a slave, he was embraced as a son. Now in that day, for the father to run through the streets and towards his disgraced son would have been himself considered disgraceful. It wasn't proper for a respectful man to to run. He'd be like, seeing a man running down the streets of the Crete in his boxes. That didn't probably make the news. And yet the father gave him the the best clothes, put a ring on his finger and, and held a huge party for him. And I see that as an illustration of God, the father's incredible love for those who are his children for those who He's called by name and and welcomed into His family. We aren't deserving of anything. Neither was this rebellious son. And yet we see just a small sample of God's love through this story. And as we consider God's love, we know it's not just an emotion or a feeling, but it is an action. Love is an action That is the expression of love. And so God's passion for humanity, His love was then expressed through the present He gave us. And we see that in the next part of verse 16. God's present. And so we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The word gave here carries the meaning of a sacrifice. It it costs the giver something in order to give the present. Okay, It might be like Working overtime in order to get more money to buy a present. Or it might be giving money to the church or to missions. uh, Even when it's sacrificial to your own financial ability. It it costs something. And so God's present, it wasn't just a cheap afterthought. It wasn't a white elephant gift. It wasn't just one of many gifts He could give. It was His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And the words only begotten here describing the Son can also be translated only Son, one and only Son, or unique Son. And I want to just briefly speak about this concept because for some it's confusing to understand what does it mean that Jesus is the begotten Son of God? Really, it means that he is unique, that he is one of a kind. So if you go to Hebrews 11:17, you can, you can even see this. If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11:17, we see uh, another example that clarifies the meaning of what it means when someone is described as the only begotten. In Hebrews 11 verse 17. So we read here, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. We're using the the same words here. How many children did Abraham have? One or more than one? we know he had more than one child. And yet it describes here that there was only one son, which is referring then to that Isaac was one of a kind, that he was unique as Abraham's son. He was the child of promise, but he had brothers and maybe sisters. If you go back to John in chapter 1, we see that the same words are used of Jesus again. In verses 14 and 18, it describes Jesus as begotten. And yet in John 1, we also clearly can see that Jesus is identified as God. And so therefore, the description of Jesus here in our verse of John 3.16 is highlighting that Christ is uniquely God's Son, that there is none like Him. And so just like a circus might come to town and and they want everyone to come to their circus. And they might say, there is the, the one and only talking elephant. Jesus is the one and the only Son of God. Now, contrary then to what the Jehovah Witnesses and some other false religions believe, Jesus was not created. The verse here doesn't mean that Jesus was created. Rather, Jesus is eternal. He is God. He is the creator of all things, which again is in John chapter 1. In John chapter 20, verse 28, we read Jesus was worshipped. And that's reserved for God alone. In John chapter 10, verses 31 to 33, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because they understood that He claimed to be God. In John 8, 58, Jesus Himself claimed to be God by identifying Himself as I Am, who existed before Abraham, meaning He is God. Okay, We can look through the the Gospels and we read of the miracles that He performed that confirm that He is God. We see that through the Gospels and the New Testament and even into the Old Testament, we understand Jesus is God. His divine attributes in the New Testament talk about this. In Hebrews 13.8, we see that Jesus is unchanging. In John 1.48, we see that He has complete knowledge. Knowledge that isn't possible through mere intellect. Because He knew where Nathanael had been even before Nathanael came to meet Jesus. In Matthew 28.20, we read Jesus' promise that He's going to be with the disciples to the end of the age, Forever. Meaning Jesus is always present everywhere. We read through miracles that He was able to calm storms. We read that He was able to forgive sins. These are attributes that define Jesus is God. And so we must understand Jesus, the present God gave the world, is truly and fully God and truly and fully man. And this truth is the truth that the Christian church has upheld since the beginning. Okay, The Nicene Creed from the 4th century, which maybe some of you have in the past memorized and spoke at other churches, it reads this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. This is our Jesus. This is our Lord. And the present that God gave isn't just Jesus coming as a baby. It's not just Jesus choosing to become one of us. But the willing and loving sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus' sacrificial death And the broken relationship between God the Son and God the Father is Jesus took upon Himself God's wrath as punishment for our sin is the cost that's associated with the present. And so it is that God gave His Son. And yet it's this present that is the means in which salvation is offered. It's not works is not birth as the jews thought it's not being a good person as many in the world today believe it's not works plus jesus as some teach and so god's love motivated him to give his son jesus christ as a present to the world And I think as we consider that, as we reflect upon this present, as we reflect upon who Jesus is and and what He had to give up, what He chose and lovingly and willingly gave up, I think that should prompt us then to greatly value the present that we received. Just like we might value a present that we have received from a friend or a family member knowing that it was sacrificial for them. Whether it's a homemade gift or whether it's a gift they had to work hard for. We put more value in those gifts that we know cost more. And so may we also reflect on the cost and the love that was given to us through Christ. So now we've considered God's passion in God's present, we see in the next part of verse 16 that not everyone will accept the present, but only those who believe will receive the promise of true salvation. And so, God's promise is the third salvation truth in the true plan of salvation. So, look with me at verse 16 at the end, and we see that it says, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is God's promise. God's promise for salvation is for people to enjoy eternal life with Him. Okay, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, that's what we deserve, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this promise is available to all who believe. Okay, It doesn't say believe and be good. It doesn't say believe and be rich. It doesn't say believe in anything else, but simply believe. So it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter your financial status. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in a Christian family and heard the gospel from a young age. It doesn't matter whether people would hear the gospel on their deathbed and would receive the gospel. It's not based on good works like the world thinks and the Jews thought. It's not based on ethnicity. Again, as it seems like maybe the world is heading in that direction today, but certainly the Jews also believed. It simply says, whoever believes. And John 1.12 similarly says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. In John 6 verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so, true salvation is conditioned on belief, which we're going to talk about further as we go into verse 18. But it is a promise. And so for those who believe the promise is that they won't perish. They will receive eternal life. And in the context here, we we understand that to perish means eternal destruction. But eternal life therefore is knowing God and knowing Christ forever, as described in John 17.3. In 1 John 3.2, eternal life is going to be a life with a new body in the likeness of Christ. In Revelation 21.4, we're going to receive and experience no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain forever. It's going to... Eternal life is going to be sinless perfection in in harmony with all other believers. Isn't that going to be a glorious day? It's going to be in the full presence and in perfect relationship with God forever. I can't fathom that. But it is a promise from our God. And and the promise is often called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. It teaches that once a person is genuinely saved, they will not lose their salvation. That certainly doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect and we all have our ups and downs. But we can understand this is a promise from God, not as something that we can boast about, not as something that we can elevate ourselves with, but it's resting in the sovereign and faithful hand of God who will not allow any of His children to be taken from Him. And so our confidence in this promise shouldn't be in ourselves and what we can do or what we have done, what we will do as Christians. It's in our faithful, never-changing God who has given us His Word, His promise, and His promise can never be broken. And so the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is ultimately elevating God and who He is as our faithful Father. And so in Philippians 1.6, we see that Paul is able to confidently say, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's God's promise to those who believe. And yet, on the other hand, for the people that don't believe, what's going to happen to them? Really what's going to happen to them is what all of us deserve. But the opposite of the promise for those who believe will receive eternal life is eternal damnation. Matthew 10.28 uses the the same Greek word and we see in that context that those people will perish to hell. And in our passage here, in our verse, John 3.16, we see that there's a contrast between eternal life and what it means to perish. In the Old Testament, Daniel 12.2 gave the same contrast between eternal life and and to perish, or eternal damnation. So Daniel 12.2 said, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so we have a contrast here, that while those who are going to receive eternal life will be able to experience pain-free living forever with God and all of His people, then we must see the opposite of that, meaning that hell is going to be a place without God. A place described as eternal torment in fire. Without God's grace, without His love. For those who believe, what a promise it is to think that while we have been and are deserving of death, We've been given, granted eternal life. Okay, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. This is God's promise, and therefore it's a 100% guarantee. And so then we've looked at God's passion, which is achieved through His present. A promise He gave, and now forth we're going to see His purpose to save. So the fourth salvation truth of God's true plan for salvation is God's purpose. In verse 17, if you read that with me, and it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God's purpose for salvation was achieved through His Son. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Before Jesus was born, we read in Matthew 121 the the prophetic words that says, "She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So, Jesus didn't come in his first coming to to judge or to condemn, but to save. Okay, we've already said that all all of us deserve judgment. And yet because of God's love for His children, He chose to save us. In John 12, 47, it says, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And okay, our judgment is a natural result of sin. We will face consequences for our sin and there is a time coming in which there will be final judgment. Jesus is is coming again to bring judgment and yet the first time that he came was to offer salvation and as it says here in our text it's through him. Okay, salvation is only through Jesus Christ. So just as Israel looked upon the serpent who was and and lived from numbers 21 which is a reference then to John 3:14 and 15. They looked upon the serpent on the pole in faith. So, too, we must look upon Christ in faith. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts 4, 12, the apostles said, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then again, in our verse here, we see who this salvation is for. And so it's interesting that we see in verse 17, the word world is mentioned three times which highlights that it's God's intention to save people from all over the earth, not just the Jews. The Jews thought it was only them, and so Jesus here is rebuking them and teaching them the salvation belongs to, to people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language. And unlike what many people in churches think today, there is only one way to salvation. As I mentioned earlier that survey, it said there was more than 40% of evangelical Christians that thought that God accepted worship from all religions. But brothers and sisters, there's only one way to receive eternal life. There's only one way to escape judgment in hell. There's only one way to be restored in relationship with God the Father. Okay, the one and the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the way and He was sent by God with that purpose and mission to save people from their sin and the consequences of their sin. In verse 17, the word send is, is often used to describe someone who is sent on a mission. They're assigned a task from someone who's in authority from them. Jesus used the same word when He was Sending out His disciples. And and here we see that Jesus was sent on a mission to save all those who would believe in Him. Whoever would believe in Him will be saved. And so unlike the Jews of Jesus' day who expected that the Messiah would come and bring their military victory and then set up His earthly kingdom Jesus' priority and His purpose in His first mission wasn't to to judge the world, but to save the world. And yet while Jesus' mission was to save Jews and Gentiles, people from all nations, those who He knew would believe in Him, that is the response we need to make in order to be saved. We need to believe upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see next that in in God's true plan for salvation, that it demands people would believe because God's prosecution is coming. And in fact, as we read through this, we see God's prosecution in, in some sense is already here for those who don't believe. And so following God's passion, the present He gave, the promise He delivered, the purpose of His Son towards salvation, we see the the fifth salvation truth. God's prosecution in verse 18. And God's final verdict is determined partly by evidence about believing or not believing in Christ. So it says in verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That means if you believe, you won't face the final day of judgment. And listen to this in John 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. What an incredible truth that is. That though we are guilty and deserving of death, we have been declared innocent and even righteous in God's eyes. And yet we see that those who don't believe will face the final day of judgment. And yet there is also already a condemnation upon them. In verse 17, that condemnation is upon them already because of their unbelief. In verses 19 to 21, condemnation is upon them because they're remaining in their sin. They continue to live in their darkness. And at the end of John 3, we read the, the last verse here, John 3, 36, and it describes these people in their, their present state of judgment. So John 3:36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so we see already it says, the wrath of God remains on him. And even from John 3.36, we see again the contrast between eternal life and damnation. We also see an interesting point that believing in obedience is connected. For it says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. In John 3.36, we could understand that those who do not believe will not see eternal life. But now the question we have to answer is, what does it mean to believe? In verse 18, we see that word three times. And it's once in our famous verse of verse 16. Okay, obviously, then it's an important word in this passage. In verse 16, it says, Those who believe won't perish, but will receive eternal life. In verse 18, it says, Those who believe won't be judged. And on the other hand, those who don't believe are destined for hell and they're already under a form of condemnation. So, what does it mean to believe? Well, in James 2.19, it says, even the demons believe and shudder. And if we look through the New Testament, we see other statements from demons who understood clearly who Jesus was. They were declaring who Jesus was before all the other people understood who He was and was declaring who He was. And yet clearly, the demons aren't going to receive eternal life. So what does it mean to believe? We see other people again through the Gospels who supposedly believed, who were following Jesus, who were witness to His miracles, who heard His teaching. Those who were were part of the, the celebration as He came into Jerusalem a week before those same people crucified Him. And so in Matthew 7, 22 to to 23, we read those people who would profess to be believers, who were active in the church, who were involved in ministry. And, And it says here, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons and in Your name perform many miracles? So they're saying we were active in the church, we were serving the church. And yet Jesus says here that He will say, And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so again, there is a concept of those who would profess to be believers, but not be genuine believers. And so the biblical idea of believing in salvation or for salvation isn't just the intellectual knowledge or head understanding. It's not just our intellectual agreement with the truth of what Scripture teaches. It's not just a one time sinner's prayer that doesn't change and impact the rest of our life. Okay, we must intellectually understand the, the essence, the basic, and the essentials of the gospel in order to be saved, but it also includes an ongoing action. And the verb describes an action that continues. And so therefore it's the the act of continually believing and and it encompasses trusting and submitting oneself to the Lord because we believe in his name. And so therefore, in the in this passage, those who are facing God's prosecution are those who don't believe in the name of the one and only Son of God. And the idea of believing in someone's name in, in that day particularly was really important. To to believe in someone's name was to understand, trust, and to accept the very character of that person. It wasn't just to know that someone was living and active, but it was to trust them, to accept who they are as they presented themselves. And so to believe in the name of Christ, then means to believe Him and everything He claims to be. As we went through even earlier, he claims to be Jesus. We must accept. He sorry, he is Jesus. He claims to be God. We must accept and understand that he is God. He says that he is the only way to salvation. We must understand and accept that he is the only way to salvation. It includes trusting him and him alone for salvation. It might be like a, a, a brand name that you would love. A brand name that would be the only name that you would trust. Maybe when you go to the grocery store, you have to get a particular brand of a product. Otherwise, you won't buy a different brand. Some of you might even not buy the product in any other store here and wait till you go to Edmonton so you can get your brand name of whatever it is. You may have brand names of guns or machines. And you are so committed to that brand name that you will tell others that this is the only one that you can buy, that this is the best brand and the only brand, that every other brand is is nothing. And you would refuse to buy any other brand because you wholeheartedly are committed to buying one brand. Okay, in the same way, we're to be wholeheartedly committed to Jesus Christ. And yet, choosing a brand of ketchup is such a small choice to having to wholeheartedly embrace ourselves in the name of Jesus Christ. What he stands for, who he stands for, and the eternal life that he offers. And so in 1 John 3:23 it says, "And this is His commandment. It's God's commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. To truly believe in Jesus Christ isn't about our ability to give a, a theological lecture. It's not about being able to stand up and, and preach. To believe in Jesus Christ isn't how well we can recite verses or a Sunday school lesson. It's not telling others the gospel even. It isn't believing in Jesus plus trying to add anything else. Okay, to believe in Jesus Christ is to accept all that he claims and to trust him completely for salvation. And I just want to keep hammering that point home. I hope I've done it today. Because we live in a world and we live in a a broader church context that doesn't understand this truth. And so, believing in Jesus is to, to put into action your belief in who Jesus is and what He's done and submitting to Him as Lord. It's to have a a deeply rooted faith and trust in Jesus no matter what the circumstances might be that you're even facing now or will in the future. It's to have a a personal relationship with Christ. It's to to know Christ and to be known by Him. Because you've welcomed Him into your life as the one and the only hope for your salvation, as the, the only hope for your eternal future as the only hope for your present circumstances. And so for those who don't believe, I would urge you to call upon the name of the Lord today. Don't let another day, another minute go without calling upon the name of Jesus Christ, for He is the only hope. I would call you to repent from your sin, to turn from your wicked and evil ways, knowing that you're an enemy of God that you're unable to please God, and that you would receive the forgiveness of sin because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. God's prosecution is coming. And we can only avoid this through Christ. You can only do so because of God's passion and His presence to fulfill His promise and His purpose. And God's salvation plan isn't based on on who you are and what you've done or haven't done. It's motivated by God's love and it's achieved through what Christ did through His death and His resurrection. And so you can receive forgiveness for your sin. But we see here that that includes, that involves a wholehearted belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done. It involves embracing that Jesus paid the penalty for sin through His own death. And that includes committing yourself to live for Him, to obey Him, to follow Him. And for those of us who believe, let us be encouraged that there is a guarantee of eternal life. There is God's promise of eternal life. And may we respond then to God's true salvation plan by standing against the false gospel. By telling others the true gospel. And may we respond by glorifying our our gracious, saving and forgiving God for what He has done in salvation. Let's pray. Oh, gracious... God, you have given us the gift of eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that there's a world around us and a broader church that doesn't understand the message of salvation and your true plan for salvation. I pray that we would be ambassadors for Christ. That we would indeed be used by You to call others to repentance and faith. That we would faithfully proclaim the Gospel as opportunity arises. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by the truth of the Gospel and that we would live it out every day as we reflect upon what Christ has done. And this truth isn't just a a truth for eternal life in heaven, but this is a truth for eternal life that starts and continues today. That we would reflect upon Christ what He has done to have taken away the sin of all those who would believe in Him. And so may we acknowledge Christ, give glory to Christ. And Father, if anyone here doesn't know Christ, I pray that you would bring them into relationship with you. As they believe in their only son of God. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.